Church family, as we come to consider our passage this morning, 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21, I'd like to call your attention uh, before we read this to our guiding theme through this series that has focused upon paganism. I have been presented the idea uh, virtually every week that paganism is, in fact, the worldview that has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age in Western culture and in many parts of what we call Christianity. And I've said that, nevertheless, the call to all of us as believers is to be faithful to the mission of who we are and why we are and what we've been called to do. Now, just to sort of punctuate that idea this morning, um, Julie was having a conversation in church with... um, one of the families who have their students in the public school system uh, here in North Carolina. And uh, during this past week, as school is coming to an end, because this is the month of June, um, the teacher was handing out uh, these uh, various, well, a particular kind of thing that was actually, actually exalting the fact that this is Pride Month, So I'm encouraging all students to respect the fact that this is Pride Month. And so here you have Christian kids who are restricted from saying much about the Christian faith in a public school system. Uh, But we have the LGBTQ community able to have this inroads into the public school system and have their agenda and their ideas widely promoted. Um, And, of course, the very things which... Pride Month represents are the kinds of things which we know that uh, break the concept of uh, biblical marriage and our attacks against God-given human sexuality. These things are the heart of paganism. They are evidence that Western culture, the United States, uh, in fact, the narrative of today has thoroughly eclipsed the influence of biblical truth. That is why studying the story of Elijah, and now as we introduce Elijah, has been very significant because none of this is new. None of this is new in human history. None of this is new to the uh, the revelation of what God has given to us in Scripture. So we come to 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21, and this takes place uh, after the time that Elijah has spent at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God down in the Sinai Peninsula. So he, meaning Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, let's pray. Our fathers, we come to this passage this morning. We would pray that your spirit who inspired these words would illuminate our hearts and minds and work in us in response to your word, 
all things that are well-pleasing in your sight. Give us a deeper understanding of your truth, a deeper understanding of your ways, and a deeper desire to follow you in the midst of a world that um, has exchanged your truth for a lie and has worshipped and served created things rather than you, the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And once again, just remind you that the title of, uh, this is the third part title of uh, the God of Salvation and Service. That's what we've been looking at. And I want to begin with these two ideas, salvation and service. I want you to think about the very, very tight biblical connection between these two ideas, salvation, service. The Savior said this at the Last Supper, I am among you as one who serves. Before he entered Jerusalem, he said to his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul in Philippians 2.6 tells us, that to be the Savior, Jesus emptied himself, that is, he descended from heaven, came into this world, became incarnate, and took the form of a servant. The book of Romans, the simplest but most accurate outline of the book of Romans is three points, sin, salvation, and service. The connection between salvation and service is very, very tight. We're saved so that we may serve. And so Paul says in Colossians 3, 23 to 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, which is salvation, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, the tight connection, salvation service, carries over into this matter of God's calling. In other words, God's calling to salvation and God's calling to service are essentially similar because both are demonstrations of God's sovereignty and how he works in his people. And this is what we're going to look at as we consider the story of the calling of Elisha. Now, once again, as with each of these stories of Elijah, this introduction to Elisha displays a focused theme that we find again and again. That God does what he does with us, for us, in us, and to us. In order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. And as bleak as the situation and circumstances may seem, our faithful God ensures our salvation and our service to his glory. Now, this is the key idea. God ensures our salvation and service to his glory. And he does so as the God who calls us to salvation and who also calls us to service. So the topic before us is God's calling illustrated in the calling of Elisha in three particular ways. First, God's call comes unexpectedly. And then secondly, God's call brings an effectual response. Thirdly, God's call brings 
significant costs. Now, before moving ahead, we really need to define the idea of God's call. Because in Scripture, we see two aspects to this idea of calling. Two aspects in salvation and two aspects in service. There is the invisible and internal side, which is totally God's work, but there's also the external and outward side, the external call, where God uses visible means, most often using people uh, through whom God does his actions and God speaks his words. Now, in this story, Elijah himself is God's visible outward means for the call upon Elijah. But it's God's invisible work of calling that is our primary interest. What God does in the hearts of those he saves, as well as those he calls to service. And the relationship between the two is this. It is God's invisible work that makes the visible and outward means of the actions of a call actually come to pass. Elijah here is the instrument of God calling Elisha outwardly, but it is God himself who does the inward call upon Elisha's life. So we look at verse 19. Here is what we see, first of all, that God's call comes unexpectedly. So verse 19 is really the context of this call. So reading this again. So Elijah departed from there, which is Mount Horeb, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So I thought there were some interesting things about the context of Elisha's life geographically. Because back in verse 16 of chapter 19, we read there that Elisha was the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah. Well, then the question becomes, where is Abel-Meholah? <laughs> and Professor Davis, whom I've quoted a number of times in this series, uh, essentially says this, that the location isn't definite, but it's usually placed in the Jordan Valley west of the river, so the west side, the west bank of the river, 10 miles south of Bethshan. Now, Bethshan is a city that is at the juncture of the eastern part of the Jezreel Valley, which intersects the middle part of the Jordan Valley. Now, think of this this way. The Jezreel Valley is an east-to-west valley stretching from the Mediterranean all the way to the Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley is a north-south valley from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to, uh, well, it narrows down, and then eventually the river goes into the Dead Sea. Now, Elisha is working on a farm about 10 miles south of this juncture. So he's in the very southern part of the Jordan Valley. Now, here's the interesting bit of information, which in, in, in thinking about this, it gave me a greater feel for the story. With the renewal of the rain, we have a renewal of a very lush and fertile farm area. The Jordan Valley happens to be 700 feet below sea level. 700 feet below sea level. Temperature-wise, the Jordan Valley is always several degrees warmer than places outside of the valley that are at higher elevations. So even today, 
it is one of the most fertile places on earth in terms of growing and growing seasons. Now, this takes us then to Elijah's current calling. He's farming. He's plowing on his father's land. But the description, as read it here, is neither clear nor plain, at least from our perspective. My first impression, and I've gotten the same impression a number of times when I read it, was to picture 12 yoke of oxen, which would be 24 oxen in total, all in front of Elijah, as though he's the only one who's plowing uh, behind 24 ox. Well, no, that's not what's really going on. Elisha is one of 12 who are plowing. The 11 other men, most likely servants, are each handling their own pair of oxen. This is what the commentators say about this, and we can trust that they know something about this. And The great Jewish historian and scholar uh, Alfred Edersheim writes that Elisha is really the 12th, and he describes this as typical of the good old Hebrew fashion, or he, the 12th, guiding that pair, he's the son of the owner of these lands. So he, the son, working his father's land with 11 other men who happen to be uh, servants employed to do this. So you're getting a picture here of the kind of person that Elisha happens to be, faithfully doing what he's supposed to be doing in terms of farming the land. But then we have this new calling for Elisha that occurs. Elijah comes by and casts his mantle, or his cloak, upon him. And that's the extent of what the text says. Now, clearly, something's going on here that's very surprising. It's not as though Elisha woke up that morning and thought about the plowing he and his servants were going to get done and said to himself, oh, wait, I'll never finish because today is the big day that God is going to change my life forever. No, what happened was surprising. What happened was unexpected, and that is how the narrative is intended to be read. Matthew Henry points out that this calling comes not while Elisha is praying, but plowing, not while he's doing acts of worship and piety, but instead while he's actively supporting his family with his livelihood. The point is that what's on display here is God's sovereignty and what he does with us and in us. There are similarities here to what we find in the New Testament in terms of how Peter and Andrew and James and John are taken from being fishermen to becoming fishers of men. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we read these words that while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, many of their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, when Jesus called these men to be his disciples, it was sudden and unexpected. Again, we see God's sovereignty in calling people to service displayed. 
God changed their calling immediately. And God worked in them, making them responsive, this call. So likewise, God calls Elijah. For being a farmer who sowed seed to becoming a prophet who would sow the seed of God's word. Now, this may seem to us to be a special type of call, this, this calling to service. But we actually need to see how God's work in this fashion reflects how God actually has worked in each one of us. Because there's no real difference ultimately in how God works in our lives because of who God is over our lives. We are the sheep of God's pasture. We are the flock under his care. He is the Lord and King over our lives. God always has the right to direct our lives. He always has the right to establish our calling and service. God is always entitled to our obedience. God is the God of who we are. God is the God of why we are. We are all as Christians, servants who must stand ready to do God's will. Now, often things prove to be a surprising turn of events and therefore unexpected. Truthfully, you and I cannot anticipate what God is going to do. Only that God will be holy and righteous in all of his ways. We must simply be ready at all times to obey his calling. And moving on to verse 20. The second thing is that God's call brings an effectual response. So look at what Elisha does. Verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. So here we see this instantaneous response on Elisha's part, which is a testimony to how God's call is effectual. At some level that we're not privileged to to actually read and see and understand, Elisha grasped the significance of what Elijah did with his mantle. What we cannot see, but which we have to infer, is what Matthew Henry calls the invisible hand of God, which touches Elisha's heart and inclines him to respond in obedience to this very moment. Now, this is the same kind of sovereignty, though, that God exercises in our salvation. Uh, thinking about what Jesus says in the Bread of Life message in John chapter 6, I want to point out two verses in particular. Verse 44 and then verse 65. Jesus said to those that he was speaking to, the Jews he was speaking to, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in verse 65, and he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. So Jesus is saying that God's drawing, God's granting, is the very essence of this effectual call. God's call is entirely effectual because it secures the response that God himself gives. So when God is calling to salvation, our experience will be that of being drawn to Christ because it's been granted by the Father 
that we should come to Christ. That's why this effectual calling is placed central in what we call the golden chain of redemption. That verse that we find in Romans 8.30 where the apostle Paul writes this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God's calling on our lives brings about the effectual response that God has occur. But we also need to consider Elijah's response, because Elijah says to Elisha, verse 20, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, these are puzzling words. What does Elijah mean? Why does he say this? And I'll tell you, I don't really know. <laughs> and truthfully, when places in Scripture are puzzling to me, I am exceptionally happy that as God has given to the church godly and brilliant scholars who have plumbed the depths of God's word, who can open up and throw light upon what is darkness to me. But even Professor Davis, the one that I have found to be so helpful, admits that this is a very tough statement to understand. And, and what he says about this is, the last clause of Elijah's response to Elisha is difficult. <laughs> then he goes in for a couple of possible explanations based upon different ways of looking at what the Hebrew actually says. Uh, so he says that it, it, on the one hand, the what have I done to you might be words that emphasize permission. That is to say, go return. Of course you may. Um, what have I done to prevent you? That is to say, sure, you can go back and kiss your parents goodbye. I'm not doing anything to prevent you from doing that before you come to follow me. Or it could be taken in a different direction, other scholars say. It means something like this. It's a caution. Yes, you may go back with respect to your parents and kiss them goodbye. But remember what I've done and what it signifies. So anyway, I read all of that and I thought, wow, these clarifications really have brought me no clarity at all as to what is actually being said here. So who is my fallback in a situation like this? Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry. He has seemed to be most helpful in terms of what he has to say about the strange thing that Elijah says to Elijah. But let me paraphrase his response to sort of open it up and make it clear, because after all, Matthew Henry writes in King James English, which isn't always clear uh, to us. So updating it elaborating a little bit to make this clear to us. Here's what Matthew Henry is saying. Elijah tells Elijah to go back and make his goodbyes. And to do this because he, Elijah, would never hinder Elisha from a fifth commandment obligation to honor his parents. But further, Elijah is also inferring that Elisha could go back and not return for this reason. Elijah would not force Elisha. Elijah would not have Elisha follow him against his will. Rather, Elijah would let him sit down and count the cost and make this new calling a matter of his own choice and his own action. But then Matthew Henry goes on to say there's a principle involved here. It's the principle about the efficacy of God's grace, that it preserves the natural liberty 
or the natural freedom of man's will so that those who pursue what is good are doing so out of their choice, not by some force or constraint. They are not enslaved men, but truly volunteers. They truly serve because of their voluntary choice, but their voluntary choice is made voluntary by the secret work of God. So the point is this, even though God's calling is sovereign and it's effectual and secures the response that God intends, no one's natural liberty of choice or will is ever violated. Rather, it's renewed, and there's a difference. When I came to this point in reading this and studying this, it reminded me about a story uh, that R.C. Sproul has told. There was one time when he was lecturing, uh, apparently a college class, uh, when he was a professor, and uh, he was talking about theology and salvation. And as he's talking about these things, one of the students raised his hand, asked this question, but there was some acrimony, there was some attitude uh, in his uh, in his voice, and he said, "Are you, Professor Sproul, a Calvinist?" Now Sproul says that he was about to say yes, but he paused first, and he asked the student, um, "What do you mean by a Calvinist?" And the reply was something like this: "I mean someone who believes that God picks people to be saved who don't even want to be saved, and He drags them." kicking and screaming into his kingdom against their will, while there are others who are pleading to be saved, begging to be saved, who want to be saved, who want to come to Christ, that God ignores, passes them by, and sends them to hell. And Sproul responds, well, if that's what you believe a Calvinist is, I am no Calvinist. And the point is that, that Sproul was making is that no Calvinist who's ever understood the Bible, who's ever been a reputable teacher, never has that approach to salvation, that understanding of God's sovereignty ever been taught, ever been written about in that way. God doesn't save people by dragging them, kicking and, and screaming into his kingdom. He never rejects people who really want to come to Jesus. That's not what we read in Scripture. That's never what we read on the words of Christ. That's not what true Calvinism has ever taught about salvation. In fact, every Calvinist can sing without fear Charles Wesley's great hymn, and can it be, Charles Wesley, an avowed Arminian, but especially the fourth stanza of that great hymn, which goes this way. Long my imprisoned spirits lay, fast bound, and sin, and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Now, at this particular point, the words of Charles Wesley and a biblical understanding by all true Calvinists is exactly the same. This is the work of effectual calling. It is God who calls us out of sin and darkness. It is God who gives us light and life so that we awake from the spiritual darkness. We awake from the spiritual death. And it's God who caused this quickening so that our hearts are then set free and we respond by rising up to follow 
Christ. And when our hearts are set free by the effectual calling of God, then we will choose to believe and follow Christ. God's call brings about the effectual response of both being able to see the object of our faith clearly and then following Jesus in whom we have placed our faith. And that's the point that Matthew Henry's making. As the outward means by which God calls Elisha, Elijah is fully respecting Elisha's own heart and choice. Elijah doesn't have to manipulate Elisha's emotions or force his will against his will because Elijah knows that God has called Elisha to be his successor. He knows that Elisha will be moved by God to follow him. He knows that God's call brings its effectual response. Now, likewise for us in our service, our prayers for others, our good works for others, our calling is to faithfulness. Our calling is never to secure the outcomes. That's why we've been using this benediction. The Apostle Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Our, our calling is not to cause the outcomes, but our calling is to faithfully serve. It's God's call itself, his invisible working, that secures that effectual response. Now, thirdly, what we see in Elisha's call is this, that God's call carries significant costs. So verse 21, and he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah, assisted him. Now, there's a certain cost here to Elisha in terms of his lifestyle. We see a sufficient number of details in the text, especially the 12 yoke of oxen, which is indicative of a certain degree of prosperity. That is to say, uh, Elisha and his father uh, are not doing survival subsistence farming, but they have very good land and they have a, a fairly substantial herd of oxen in order to do all of his plowing. So Elisha is going to leave uh, this fairly prosperous farming life for a much less prosperous kind of life as a public servant, public prophet of God. And truthfully, Christians have always had to make that kind of decision, living and working in the world. There are times in which Christians could easily have lived much more prosperous lives by working with people who themselves are not necessarily honest and reputable with respect to the things that they do. Christians have always had to use the, the guidance of the word of God in their choices about how to make their living. And often Christians have surrendered a more prosperous lifestyle 
in order to have a more faithful life before God. We also see, secondly, that there's a cost here of leaving in terms of family and community. Elisha will never be with his parents and family or friends or community ever again in the way in which he has been with them up to this point. Everything now changes. And such a change is costly in terms of what is lost. Uh, Any of us who have ever moved away from family and friends, we recognize what this is like. We recognize that this is hard. We recognize that God takes us into something else where things can be incredibly different. There is a cost. It's a relational cost. There can be a certain psychological cost. There can be things that Elisha will now experience working with Elijah that are the loneliness of the loss of family and friends and parents. I was thinking about this this week because I had a very poignant conversation with uh, our good buddy and friend, Jared Hurd. We talked about the death of his father. And he said it was a profound sense of loss. He felt now having neither father nor mother in this world. He felt a kind of loneliness he had never felt before. And then he shared how his heavenly father filled that group. Void and the communion and fellowship of the living God became all the more sweeter because of the loss of his dad and then the sense of, of what that meant. And I think about those things and I think about what Elisha is losing. It's similar. He may never again see his parents and siblings and friends in this community because now he's going to be following Elijah and succeeding him and pursuing this public ministry of being God's prophet. Thirdly, cost of worldly significance. Elijah's status is going to change. He's going to go from one who has servants to now taking the form of a servant. The latter part of verse 21 tells us that Elisha went after Elijah and assisted him, which literally means became his servant. And later on in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11, Elisha is described as he who poured water on the hands of Elijah, which is another way of talking about performing the service and ministry of being a servant. So the immediate impact of this call is the cost of a certain kind of significance, uh, but a significance that only really counts with men and not with God. But also in terms of worldly significance, there is the cost of contramundum. Contramundum, the Latin phrase, against the world. It represents the idea of standing in defiance 
of all general opinion. This is the cost that Elijah experienced, and this is now the cost that Elisha is going to experience as the pagan world personified in Jezebel seeking to take the life of Elijah is now eventually going to be focused upon the ministry of Elisha. This is the cost that Elisha is going to have to pay. Living a life in which his words, his message, are going to be in defiance of the general opinion of those who've been pulled in by the paganism existing in Israel. This is now the cost for every authentic Christian in a post-Christian world. We also must bear the cost of standing against the world and living in defiance of so much of the general opinion of the culture of the day. But this should not surprise us. Jesus said this would be so. In John chapter 15, beginning of verse 18, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep also, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And we might respond, well, but, but wait, isn't that just the apostles? Isn't that just the apostles that Jesus is speaking to here? Because we know these things did happen to the apostles. We know that most of them were martyred, but not according to the Beatitudes, which are addressed to all those who follow Christ. In Matthew 5, when we come to verse 9, which is the end of the sweeter Beatitudes, we read, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We come to 10 and 11 and 12, where Jesus then says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the cost of following Christ. Contramundum. Because God's call carries significant cost. So what have we seen in these few verses? Three key ideas. God's call comes unexpectedly. And this is true in both salvation and service. God's call brings its effectual response. Likewise. God is sovereign in salvation and in service. God's call 
carries significant cost. Salvation and service merge here because to follow Christ as one who's been bought with a price will always place us in the context of a pagan world contra mundum. We as believers will be living against the tide and against the world. But the Lord Jesus says to us, nevertheless, take courage for I have overcome world. Amen. Father, help us to embrace our purpose as Christians, who we are and why we are here in this day in which darkness has much eclipsed the light of your word and the light of the gospel. More than ever, Father, within our culture, enable us to be salt, enable us to be light. Help us to recognize, Lord, that the days in which we might have gained a hearing uh, because of our Christian faith may be days that are past. But nevertheless, Lord, enable us by all of your grace and power effectually working within us to will and to do your good pleasure, which is always everywhere, to love our neighbors as ourselves and to bear a faithful witness to the truth that you have loved with an everlasting love broken sinners in this world. And that Jesus, to all who will hear, will say these words, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Our Father, may we be those who bear a faithful witness to your Son, the Lord Jesus, in such a day that we now live in. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>